Welcome to 5 Things About. Before we start, let me tell you about a new podcast called Eavesdrop on Ideas. It explores themes through the lens of artists, authors and academics. Our first episode was about the event horizon from science to art. We collected comments from amazing people, but the entire unedited interviews were so exciting we decided to publish them here on the 5 Things About channel. So here they are. Enjoy. I'm Margaret Wertheim. I am a science writer and I've written a series of books on the cultural history of physics, including a book called Pythagoras's Trousers and another one called The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, which is actually a history of Western concepts of space from the Middle Ages to today. So that book is very specifically relevant to a discussion about the event horizon. I'm also an artist and part of the artwork that I make is a project based on hyperbolic geometry. Thanks, Margaret. Can you expand for our um, listeners, what is an event horizon? What is an event horizon is actually quite a controversial thing in physics. So the classical idea, and when I say classical, that means it's been thought of since about the 1960s, was that an event horizon is the place where as you approach a black hole, you slip over into a place where you can never come back. And also looking at it from the perspective of the black hole, that anything inside the event horizon couldn't in any way get out to the outside world. So that anything inside the event horizon surrounding a black hole couldn't affect anything that happened outside. So this gives you a kind of idea that a black hole is surrounded by a sort of clear-cut boundary called the event horizon, which delineates, as it were, the inside and the outside, what can come in, what can come out. But it's now been understood more recently that this very clear-cut idea doesn't really hold up. So understanding what an event horizon is specifically is actually, we don't really fully know. But the, the, the sort of short answer of what an event horizon is, is that it's in some sense a boundary around a black hole within which we can neither see further in nor anything that's in there can ultimately get out. Margaret, recently scientists have captured an image of it. What does that really mean? Well, I think what's beautiful about the event horizon telescope image is that for the first time we have a picture of at least some of a black hole. We we can't see inside the black hole, but we've got a picture of where a black hole is. And this is a pretty extraordinary thing because black holes were predicted by general relativity, but for a long time pretty much everybody didn't think that they could actually exist in nature. Einstein thought and a lot of other people thought that black holes were just, as it were, artefacts of the mathematics that wouldn't really occur in the physical world. But since the 1970s, astronomers and cosmologists have become to understand that, yes, that they do really seem to be out there, particularly at the hearts of galaxies. And now we have a picture of one. And so it's a bit like we've captured a picture, you know, in medieval period, how they say on the edges of the maps beyond the known world, they go, here there be monsters. Well, we have the same thing too. 
black holes are these kind of mythical monsters lurking out there. And now we've got a picture of one. Margaret, um, your career spans across, as you said in your introduction, the arts and sciences. How do you think artists and authors can help us to fathom this idea of the event horizon, both literally and metaphorically? I think, I mean, if you want to understand literally in a physics sense, I think physicists are really the people we need to defer to. And I would too on that subject, because as I said before, they are pretty controversial and difficult things to understand. The event horizon in some sense is a place where general relativity meets quantum theory. And we don't understand that boundary. That is one of the great challenges of 20th century physics is to understand this interface between relativity and quantum theory. And black holes, part of the reason they're so special is precisely because they are places where that interface is is very, very clear, but we don't understand it at all. I think the idea of event horizon, as far as artists and writers go, it's really more that like many major scientific concepts, it's incredibly thought-provoking and literally a provocative idea so that it gives us, because it raises this whole question of what's the inside and what's the outside and we don't really know. It's a wonderful, as it were, liminal subject, which I think artists and scientists who are very good at using metaphors can then riff off that, you know, idea of what does it mean to be inside, what does it mean to be outside. I noticed, Susie, that in your issue of the magazine, that I did, am I right in thinking that somebody has an article about immigration and event horizons? Yes, yeah. I think opposite that, that it really, that also is about the issue of who gets in and who gets out. Yes, certainly. So many different ways we can utilise the concept of event horizon to expand our thinking on other issues completely seemingly completely different um just to follow up quickly on that relying upon scientists in trying to understand what an event horizon is you mentioned um the general theory of relativity by einstein do you regard him as a creative thinker in imagining and and writing this idea of mathematics or of physics Absolutely. I mean, I think that many, many physicists feel that general relativity is perhaps the most creative leap of imagination that's been made in the history of physics. And it's a very unusual case in the history of science because the world was not crying out for this theory. There wasn't really any data that was crying out for explanation. Einstein created the theory really from an extraordinary set of imaginative leaps that he made in his mind because he wanted to understand how gravity would affect motion. From that idea, he ended up creating this extraordinary mathematical sculpture. And I think that it does actually rate as one of the great aesthetic achievements of 
the modern West. It is based on mathematics, but it is it is an incredibly imaginative construct. And the fact that it turns out to be true is almost even more amazing because it's not ipso facto clear in the beginning that relativity, general relativity, would have had to be true. But it turns out that in some sense it is true. And by true, I mean in that by looking at things like the event horizon black hole, general relativity makes predictions about the way that astronomical objects will behave that are borne out by massive amounts of data now. But it wasn't necessarily clear that that was going to pan out. And indeed, when you read books about the history of general relativity for the first 50 years, most people, even most most physicists, didn't actually think it would. Margaret, you've made reference to the fact that the arts and the sciences share imaginative thinking and also create metaphors in making sense of ideas or objects or sorts of realities. Tell us more about your work in this area of that art-science nexus. A big art project that I do is called the Crochet Coral Reef Project, and it is actually based on incarnating with crochet structures called hyperbolic geometry, which hyperbolic geometry is part of the geometry that underlies the general theory of relativity. So general relativity gives us a description of space-time as curved, and it is described by a kind of geometry called Riemannian geometry, which is basically a generalised geometrical description of curved surfaces. And one kind of curved surface are called hyperbolic surfaces. And one way of saying it, and it's a very oblique way, but it is the way mathematicians use, is to say that hyperbolic surfaces are the geometric opposite of a sphere. But that sounds very mysterious, and it is. But it so happens that these negative curvature hyperbolic surfaces are realised in lots of things in nature, including corals and lettuce leaves and cactuses. So whenever you see these frilly, curly surfaces in nature, they are in fact hyperbolic geometric structures. And they are described by this alternative geometry to the geometry we learn at school. And the project that I do actually was originally in before I started crocheting the corals, I was just simply interested in teaching people to make these structures using crochet because it turns out that you can make these things most easily with crochet, which is a discovery made by a mathematician called Dr. Diana Tamina. But when you start playing around and don't do mathematically precise ones they stop looking like mathematical models and they start to look like organic things particularly like corals so my project which I do with my sister my twin sister Christine we crochet these negative curvature hyperbolic surfaces but we make devious and wonky ones and they look like coral reefs and so the project brings together mathematics science, reflections on global warming, and handicraft. Margaret, I have to add here that I actually did make my own little coral reef when you started this project. Yes, I was an avid crocheter, and I joined in the worldwide movement of those hyperbolic 
artistic expressions of coral. So um, I have a mini one here in Melbourne. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Well, it, it's very charming because when my sister and I invented this project in 2005, we had two reasons we wanted to do it. One was because we wanted to communicate to people about this amazing non-Euclidean geometry, which does underlie general relativity. And we thought it was really important, as you asked earlier, um, Andy, how can you give people who are not professional scientists access to information about something as, as it were, abstract and theoretical as general relativity? But you can, in fact, give people a lot of insight into it through doing crochet. And when we do workshops, we spend the first half hour of the workshop discussing the history of geometry and, and literally the structure of space-time. But then you start making coral reefs and then we're starting to talk about, well, why are we doing coral reefs? It's because corals do actually make these structures. And we wanted, with the project, to do an artistic response to the fact that the Great Barrier Reef was being devastated by global warming. I should say, Chrissy and I grew up in Brisbane, so the Great Barrier Reef looms large in our consciousness. I just had a quick follow-up related to your Crochet Coral Reef project. You exhibited as part of the Venice Biennale in 2019, and I came across the Coral Reef first in that space, and it felt to be like one of the only exhibits within the whole Biennale that was really looking at referencing ecological issues and contemporary climate crisis as part of the work. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to be exhibited in the Biennale? There were actually a number of works in the Biennale that referenced climate change. Um, they, they were perhaps not as direct as ours, but but there were four or five at least works that I counted that altogether were referencing climate change. So one of the things that I felt about the Biennale that was extremely strong, and this is something that the curator, Ralph Rugoff, did very consciously, is that there was actually about 20 exhibits in the whole show, which were basically art and science projects. And they referenced quite a number of different aspects of art and science, including there was a number that were about space exploration. There was an incredibly beautiful diorama of Mars. There was actually three projects that were referencing Mars travel. There was a couple of projects that were about quantum mechanics, particularly there was one about potential for quantum time travel. And I was extremely impressed with the Venice Biennale, how much work there was in the show that was at the interface of art and science, but it was done in a way that was very subtle so that the curator didn't choose to put them all together in an art and science context. They were scattered about the whole show, but about literally about 20% of the works in that show were art and science works. And I thought the show was incredibly strong from that perspective, and it really surprised me that no reviewers picked up on that angle. I would have written about it myself, but of course I can't write about a show that I'm in. But one of the things that I think this raises is quite interesting, and that is that when artists do work at the boundary of art and science, 
it doesn't actually have to be sort of telegraphed in loud letters that this is art and science. And I thought one of the great strengths of the Biennale was that it was just in there among the rest of the art saying, this is great art. It's at the Venice Biennale. So someone's judging it as great art. And there's just this enormous amount of science in there. And we're just going to let you absorb it subtly. And I thought that was very, very beautiful and wonderful decision on the part of Ralph Rugoff, the curator. Definitely that intersection between art and science in the 2019 Biennale was very prominent and clear. Did you get that sense too, Susie? I did. I did, absolutely. I thought your work, it really spoke to me as the strongest in terms of referencing science, space, ecology, the blackboard element as well, almost a pedagogical element related to Euclidean space that was really strong and affecting. So yeah, I I particularly enjoyed your work. I'm glad you used the word pedagogical because one thing that Chrissy and I, myself, and both of us and the curator very much agreed on, which was that we wanted our part of the exhibit to have the feeling like it was a 19th century natural history museum exhibit. And in the same way that 19th century natural history museums are just, they're both pedagogical and just deeply aesthetically wondrous, we wanted our show or our installations to have that feeling that, as it were, science pedagogy can itself be an aesthetic triumph. Is the image actually a representation? Hasn't it been taken through various filters? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's an enormous amount of computer processing power that it took to create that image. Would you still consider it an artwork? Is that image actually an artwork? Because I believe uh, when Susie was talking to me the other day, it's been accepted into an art gallery. Is that right? Yeah, um, uh, Peter Gallison, who we're speaking to later in the week, I I believe, um, Margaret, you might know more about this. He donated it to the Museum of Modern Art collection in New York. Well, my answer to this question, is that image an artwork, is the following. I don't think it's an artwork. I think it's a fantastically wonderful, enchanted image. But it's an image that was produced by science as a piece of science. I don't really see why it should be called an artwork. That said, I don't see why it shouldn't be exhibited in a gallery because these days art galleries do actually show lots of things other than things that were created as art. And I think to me this is an important thing to understand about the state of contemporary art is that art galleries have become very eclectic, open-minded institutions that exhibit a lot of things like parts of rockets. I've seen, you know, parts of rockets in art galleries. Are they artworks? They were created by NASA for the space program. Do they belong in art galleries? Absolutely. So I think just because something goes into an art gallery doesn't make it an artwork. What is an artwork? That's a very complicated, difficult question. But I don't think that you need to legitimise an incredible image like that by attributing it to it 
something that it wasn't intended to be and it's no diminishment of it to say that it's a science image not an artwork margaret Wertheim, thank you this podcast was made possible by the university of melbourne and the center of visual art thanks to our guest margaret Wertheim. your hosts were dr andy Horvath and dr susie fraser audio engineering by arch cuthbertson this episode was recorded on the 11th of august 2020 Thank you.